Well, this morning, I have the privilege to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. We've got the title, Standing Before the Savior, the Judgment Seat of Christ. Well, recently, I came across a riveting question. The question was this, do you realize that we are only a heartbeat away from a fixed state of reward? Just a heartbeat away from a fixed state of reward. And the phrase that really got a hold of me was the phrase at the end there, this, this phrase, a fixed state of reward. Just one heartbeat, just one breath away from what my heavenly reward will be throughout all of eternity. In fact, the more I began to think about this fixed state, I realized that where I leave off in time, I take up in eternity. Because when this temporal earthly life ends, and it will, won't it? When it ends, that is really the beginning of eternal life. Right now, at this moment, we are just a heartbeat away from a fixed state of reward. And if Christ would come back or this heart would beat its last, and I come into that fixed state of reward standing before the Savior, is it what I want it to be? Even more importantly, is it what Christ would want it to be. You see, this concept of, of gain or loss of eternal reward is taught throughout the New Testament. In fact, it is central to our message in our text this morning. The Bible teaches that someday the church will stand before our Savior and we will be judged. So as we continue our series this morning, we're going to look at the events which immediately follow the rapture of the church. In fact, I have our favorite chart for us up there. There it is. Last week we covered the rapture, when we are snatched up to the clouds, resurrected dead, and those alive at this moment where Jesus takes us to heaven in the heavenlies. And this week we're going to focus on what we see in the purple Predominantly the judgment seat of Christ. I tried to work the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to hopefully cover that in two weeks. So we're going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. And as you have been experienced, this is a high-level overview. Just when you think we're going down your favorite rabbit trail, I stop and we back up and we go back. And you're like, wait, I wanted more. If only we had the time. So thank you for bearing with us as we give you an overview of these end-time events. Well, this morning we will examine seven elements of the judgment seat of Christ so that, here's the purpose, we might live in anticipation of His return. Now, some of you are already looking at that handout, and it is full, and you're thinking, there is no way Chris is getting through this in 55 minutes. You're already patting your stomach in anticipation of hunger pains, and I'm telling you, we're going to do it. These first five points we're going to get through rapidly. 
So let's look at this first element, and I do want to say I am truly grateful for Dr. Pentecost. He was one of my professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, and this outline really comes from one of his books. I'm following it loosely, so I just want to give him credit, really appreciate his work on end times. But let's look at this first element, the meaning of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there are a number of passages that we could look to, a number of passages that refer to this judgment for believers. In fact, I've got one up on the screen there. Matthew 12, 36. Notice what it says. Every careless word. Think about this this afternoon over lunch. Every careless word spoken, what? Shall give an accounting when? In the day of judgment. Even our words will be judged. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 15. I've just got verse 13 up there. We're going to walk through this a little bit later on, what does it say? Our work, the work that we do, it shall be revealed. It's going to be tested with fire. And then Colossians 3, 24 to 25, this is right after that passage. It says, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than for man. And then in verse 24, it says, because from the Lord you will receive the reward. So many passages talk about us receiving something from Christ, but there are two essential passages that explicitly mention the judgment seat of Christ. The first is Romans 14.10. I've got it up on the screen for you. Romans 14.10. This is just the last part of that verse. It says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Are you looking forward to that day? That sounds ominous, doesn't it? The judgment seat of God. Turn over to the second main passage, 2 Corinthians 5.10, where this idea of judgment seat is specifically mentioned. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You realize what Paul is saying here. It's essentially what he said in Romans. He just fills it in a little bit more. We all must appear before this judgment seat of Christ so that, what's going to happen there? Each one may be recompensed. This, this Greek word recompensed, it has the idea of receiving or, or obtaining. We are going to obtain our due. It has that idea. And what are we going to be recompensed for? It's the deeds done in the body. In this earth, according to what has been done, whether good or bad. So what is this judgment seat that Paul talks about both in Romans and here in 2 Corinthians? Well, this word translated judgment seat in the Greek is actually the Greek word bima. And some of you may have heard this term, the bima seat, the bima judgment seat. You're like, hey, I drive a bima. What are you talking about? Sorry, that was a poor joke, I realize. What is this bima seat? Well, in ancient times, a a bima was a raised platform. It was a seat. Sometimes it was simply a step used in athletic or political arenas. So, for example, authority figures like, like judges or rulers, they would ascend to the bima to render their decision in a legal case. We see that in Acts 18.12. 
fact, even Pilate judged Jesus from his Bema seat in Matthew 27, 19. It says Pilate was on his Bema when he was delivering judgment. And in the case of athletic events, the judge would ascend to the Bema to judge the competition and to award the winners. In fact, we have archaeological evidence of the Isthmian Games that happened in Corinth. And there's a Bema seat there in Corinth that probably the winners of these games, kind of like the Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games, they would be, receive their award, their, re, or their, re, or their wreath. In fact, I've got some pictures. I stole these from Kyle. Uh, here is the Bema seat in Corinth. In fact, we've been to Corinth. Corinth, uh, all those times we had to drive to take Whitney for eye care in Greece, we got to see all of Greece, more than we ever want to. My daughter's like, please never take us back to Greece. Uh, Corinth is incredible. Uh, and this is the Bema seat there. The next one is in Athens. We've been to this one too. This one's pretty cool. That's kind of what, what it would look like. And then the one in Sardis. This is uh, one of the churches in Revelation in Turkey, modern day in Turkey. This is kind of a, a representation of what they think that might have looked like. Just to show you, we have archaeological evidence of Bema seats. Any ancient site you go to, where in the courtyard, there was typically a Bema seat just to give you some perspective geographically, historically. So Paul's use of this word leaves little doubt that the Bema Seat of Christ will be the place where the raptured church will be judged and awarded. Now let me just say this. I'm going to say this a couple times. This judgment is not a time of testing whether you are saved or not. Did you hear me? This judgment is not a time of testing to determine whether you are saved or not. Jesus is not going to wave a magic microphone in front of you, and if it turns green, you're good, gold. If it turns red, hot place for you. That's not what the Bema Seat is. It's not a time of punishment. It's going to be an evaluation of your entire life. That's what the Bema Seat is, and Christ evaluates you as a Christian that's the meaning of the judgment seat. Let's look at the judge. Again, we're already in 2 Corinthians 5.10. What is this judgment seat called? The judgment seat of whom? Christ. This is Christ's judgment seat. Now, some of you remember Romans 14. What did it say? The judgment seat of God. So, which is it? Is it Christ's or is it God's? Well, turn with me back to John 5. The answer is yes. <laughs> John 5, 22. John 5, 22. Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. God the Father gives judgment to Christ, the Son. Look in verse 27. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of of man. See, God the Father exalts Christ, His Son, by giving Him the right to manifest divine authority in judgment. In fact, this is probably what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18, when He says, all authority has been given to me. God the Father has given Him this divine authority. Christ will be our judge. What about the subjects of the judgment seat of Christ? See, some of you are hoping we're going to end at noon. We are racing through this. Who are the subjects of the judgment seat of Christ? Well, 
Again, in both 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14, what pronoun did Paul use? He didn't say they. He didn't say some. He didn't say you, plural. What did he say? We. We. 2 Corinthians 5.10, he said, we must all appear. Romans 14, he said, we will all stand. So Paul is addressing Christians in Corinth and Rome, and he even includes himself. We as Christians, the raptured church, both the resurrected dead and those alive, from Acts 2, when the church was initiated, all the way until this future event when the rapture takes place. All Christians, dead and alive, within that time period, are going to be the subjects of this judgment seat of Christ. Now let's look at the time. The time of the judgment seat of Christ. Now often the time of judgment is really confusing for us as Christians because the Scriptures speak of three distinct future judgments. In fact, I've got this chart up. Three distinct. It's on the back of your handout in case you don't see this as quickly. And again, if you want to study this, we are borrowing this from Paul Benware's book, and he walks you through all the verses to talk about all the three distinct judgments. And this morning, we are going to focus on the blue, the judgment seat of Christ, the raptured church, which is when the judgment seat happens. Now, what do we typically confuse when you think of judgment? Is there another throne of judgment? What's that? What is it? The great white throne, GWT. When does that happen? That happens at the end of this thousand-year millennial kingdom when the unsaved are judged. Listen, if you find yourself standing before the Lord at the great white throne, it is too late. There's no second chances. Kyle's going to teach on this later on in the series. But if you find yourself in front of a giant white throne where Christ is seated, you are going to hell. And in the same token, if you find yourself before Christ seated on the Bema seat, you're going to heaven. I just want to make sure that's clear for us. And see, the judgment seat is best placed shortly after the rapture of the church, during this seven-year period of tribulation. And this is primarily based on the fact that there is a direct connection between Christ's coming and Christ's giving of reward. In fact, there's a number of passages that say this. If you look over in 1 Corinthians 4.5, it says this. 1 Corinthians 4.5, it says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. It's the idea of the Lord coming to judge and bringing praise with him. Right on the heels of this judgment comes the praise of God. Revelation 22.12 says something very similar. It says, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. So when Christ comes quickly for the church, he's bringing his reward. Well, that seems to imply that this judgment, this Bema seat judgment, will take place immediately following the rapture. Now, some of you are already thinking what I thought in seminary. Okay, if that's the time when it happens, how long is this going to take, right? Anyone out there wanting to know that? I asked my seminary professor this. Think about this. Every Christian from Acts 2 all the way to the future, I mean, we're not even done yet. We're still adding Christians to this. That is a really long line. 
Steyer, I'm going to be way at the end. Anderson, hey, get it done in the beginning. Good for you. I mean, is is it going to be one big group judgment? Is it going to be a really long line? Is it going to take a second or is it going to take all seven years? And you know what my seminary professor said? Three of the most encouraging words. I don't know. Do we know? I mean, there's some things that we can get a sense from. We can't be dogmatic. This is one of those things. I don't, I don't know that there's any scriptures that help answer this question, but I do want to make this point. It's not so much. It's not so important how long this judgment is going to take place. It's the fact that it's going to happen. Did you get that, church? It's going to happen. So even if you're a Z, don't worry. Well, what about the place of the judgment seat of Christ? Again, last week we saw that the rapture takes place where? Where does the rapture take place? 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Where does it take place? In the air, in the clouds. And since this judgment takes place immediately following the rapture and where Jesus takes us to the heavenlies, it too must take place in the sphere of the heavenlies. And that's why we have, while the seven-year tribulation is happening, in fact, I got the next slide, our chart back up again. While this seven-year tribulation period is happening on earth, that's why the judgment seat is happening at the same time. Seven-year tribulation happening on earth, judgment seat of Christ happening in the heavens. Just to give you some perspective, I think you can go to that last slide. Well, so far, we've reviewed the meaning, the judge, the subjects, the time, and the place. All five knocked out in 17 minutes. That's because we're going to focus most of our attention on these last two. Let's look at the basis of the examination of the judgment seat of Christ. What what is the basis? By basis, I mean the criteria, the standards. When Christ judges us, what are the standards by which we will be judged? Now turn over to 1 Corinthians 3, 10. 1 Corinthians 3, 10. This is a key passage to understanding this concept of the basis of examination. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10. Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Did you hear that, church? Be careful. Verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Your work is because Jesus has laid the foundation. Verse 12, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a ward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. When I was in junior high, I loved this verse. The idea of things burning up, I like lighting things on fire. Actually, I still do at 47. I don't know why I just shared that with you. (laughs) 
this text is incredible because it's talking about Christ judging us for the work that we do, and it's either going to pass through fire and remain unsinged, or it's going to be consumed by this fire. See, Paul explains in this text that the believer's works will be examined by the Lord to determine if rewards will be given or not. And it's interesting because Paul uses the, the idea of a constructor, of, of, of building a building, and he instructs us that all of the believers have been given a foundation to, to build on, and the foundation is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 11. From the moment of your salvation, each of us builds upon this foundation. Did you hear that? It's not a question of if you build on it. You are building it from the moment of your salvation. It's a question of what are you building, and even more importantly, with what materials are you building? That's the point. Because as any builder knows, the quality of your materials will help determine the quality of your finished product. John Payne knows this. He builds homes for a living. We want to build something that will last. In fact, I remember visiting a set that was often used for movies. It was in Santa Clarita Valley. Actually, it was really close to, to Master's College in Santa Clarita Valley. And one day, my friends and I were biking. We used to bike up in those hills, and we came down into this valley, and we come in, and I'm looking, and this is where Little House on the Prairie was filmed. A whole bunch of Westerns were there. Fear Factor was filmed back there. I don't know how, how that fits in. All these f- movies were filmed back there. And we, we're coming down this bike trail into this valley, and I see this little cottage, little country cottage. It's like, wow, that is really cool. Let's go inside. We were in college. We were stupid. We go up. We open the door. It wasn't until I opened the door I realized something is not right. Because what I expected to find inside was a house built of two-by-fours and plywood and building material. And instead, what I found was a house that was built out of plastic and molding and PVC and styrofoam. Can you imagine living in a styrofoam house? Was this built to last? No. What was it built for? For a short, temporary period, it was built to look pretty on the outside because it was portraying, it was a facade. I knew in that moment that if one of those storms came out of the mountains down through that valley, it would just sweep that thing away. If a fire swept through there, Californian fires, right? That's a thing. It would just consume it because it wasn't made to last. It wouldn't endure And in verse 12, Paul begins to list the building materials which will all be tested by the discerning fire of Christ's judgment. Think about what that fire is. Who's on the seat? Who's judging us? Christ. What is this fire? It's the discerning fire of Christ. Some are imperishable like gold, silver, and precious stones, some of the materials that we're using. These good works, and where do we get the idea of good and bad? It comes from that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. You're going to be judged whether it's good or bad. And these good works, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, works that please and honor God, they will not be burned up, but they will bring us a reward. That's exactly what verse 14 says. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. But some are perishable, like wood, hay, and straw. If you are a King James Bible, stubble. 
these bad works done for self, these will burn up. These will bring us loss of reward. That's what verse 15 says. It's not just that it gets burned up. It says he will suffer loss. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. And when Christ judges all that we've done, all that we've built for the entirety of our Christian life, he will base his evaluation on the following three factors. I've got him there in your handout. First, the extent of our lives in ministry followed God's word. Look over at 2 Corinthians 5.9. We're going to be going back between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Thankfully, they're really close. For those of you who know me, this is my new favorite verse. 2 Corinthians 5.9. It says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to myself, to please my spouse, to please my boss, to please the doctor, to please the tax man, to please, what does it say? What should our number one goal, our number one ambition in life be? To please the Lord, to please Him. How do you know what pleases Him? How do you know, church? It's how you feel, if it feels right. It's what you hope. Is it wishful? I hope, Lord, this is pleasing to you. No, He's given us the standard. He's given us His Word, how we can know Him, how we can relate rightly to Him in obedience. The Word shows us how to please God. And so the Bible becomes the objective standard by which Christ will judge us. Notice that word, objective. It's not subjective. It's objective. Not on our traditions, not on our experience, not on our personal opinions, but on the revealed truth of His Word. So it's not enough to simply hear the Word. Oh, I heard it. I got it up there. James 1.22 says, prove yourselves doers of the Word, not simply hearers. It's not enough to hear. It's not enough to simply know the Word. We know that. 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and what? The truth is not in him. He says, no, no, I have the truth in me. I know Jesus. I'm not obeying Jesus, but I have the truth in me and I know Jesus. And what does John say? You're a liar. You're a liar. Because if you know Christ, if that truth is in you, then you will follow him. You will obey him. So that's the extent our lives in ministry followed God's word. B, the extent we have been faithful stewards of all that God has entrusted to us. Underline, circle, faithful, faithful, faithful. We're called to be faithful stewards. I mean, think about all that God has given to you. Life, salvation, natural talent, some of you more than others, spiritual gifts, money, some of you more than others, possessions, family, training, opportunities for service, time. Realize how precious time is? Some of you, every time you look in the mirror, you're like, wow, time is going quickly. That time is precious. And those all belong to you, right? Those are your things. Who do they belong to, church? 
Who owns those things? The one who created you? The one who redeemed you? The one who is calling you to follow in his ways? All of these belong to God. We have simply been entrusted as a steward to care for them to the glory of God, to please Him, to build up His kingdom. After all, 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. God, give me more. I want you to trust me that I will be faithful to take these things that you give me and use them, rejoice in them, enjoy them but use them for you and your kingdom to build up your kingdom. I mean, even Christ used the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 to teach this concept of faithful stewardship and reward. Believer, get this. You will be responsible for how you used all of the time, the treasures and the talents that God has entrusted to you. They don't belong to you. They belong to God. So how are you building up Christ's church? How are you using those things to reach the lost? All to the glory of God. That is what the purpose of the church is for. That's why He redeemed you. To glorify God by building up this church so that as this church becomes stronger and more like Jesus Christ, we go out those doors to our neighbor and to the nations to bring the hope of the gospel to them. That's what God is calling you to do. That's what he's calling me to do. And you and I will be judged on how faithful we are with the things that God has entrusted to us. Well, see, the extent our motives have sought to honor and please God. Wait, 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 Chris. I was fine with the first two. I expected it. Okay, follow the word. Be a faithful steward. You're saying I'm going to be judged on my motive? Saying and doing the right thing, things are just as important as why we do them. Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians 4 5. Again, we're already there. Close. 1 Corinthians 4 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. That sounds scary. And disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. When the Lord comes, he will bring to light what you and I do in secret. All the things you and I think we're getting away, from, away with, he knows, and he will bring them into light. But not just that, he will also bring out and disclose what's in our hearts, why we do what we do. In fact, this implies that the judgment before Christ is so penetrating that the motives, the thoughts, the attitudes behind the deeds are evaluated as well. This addresses our inward devotion to Christ. So let me flesh this out for you. It's not enough to come on a Saturday and help a family move from one house to another. There's about 75 of you in this church that get an email from Ken Parkin. And sometimes you respond with joy and sometimes you're like, oh, not again. It's not enough just to come on a Saturday to help. Because if you came on that Saturday, the sign-up genie that Ken Parkin sends out, you respond, yes, I'm coming, and you come, and you help, and you serve, and you sweat, and you walk away. Is that a good deed or a bad deed? Don't overthink that. Is that a good deed or a bad deed? That's a good deed. And the whole time you're doing it, you're mumbling under your breath, 
frustrated that where are the rest of the people in this church helping? Why am I the only one that comes every time? You're doing it good on the outside. What's going on on the inside? Is it really about God and his glory and his kingdom? Is it really about loving God and loving others? Or is it about you? And so what happens is that good deed on the outside, it looks like it's going to go through the, the fire unburned. That bad motive turns that good deed into a bad one. It's not enough to drop some money in the offering box. We don't have plates. We have boxes. We even make you go find them. They're they're not easy to find necessarily. It's like, how do I give money to this place? It's not enough just to drop money in the box. It's why you're dropping money in the box. Why are you giving? Is it your duty? Is it obligated? Oh, it's the first, uh, I get to give my first fruits. I remember that. I'll never forget that message, Ken taught. Got to give my first fruits. Here you go, Jesus. It's not enough to regularly attend church. It's why you come. Why are you here? Sounds weird to hear a pastor say. But motive is everything. It's not enough to stop lying. It's why you stopped. You realize you and I can lie and say, wow, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to stop. Is that a good deed or a bad deed? It's a good deed. But if you do it because you're afraid of getting caught, and that's your reason, what did that good deed just become? A bad deed. You're not doing it because God hates lying. You're doing it because you're afraid of consequences. And that's how a good deed, what we think, hey, here's my gold, here's my precious stones, all for you, Jesus. And it's all about your motive. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. He's testing your mind. Why do you do what you do? Hebrews 4.13, if that wasn't bad enough, Hebrews 4.13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. No creature is hidden from the eyes of God. Everything you do is open to the all-seeing gaze of our Lord. I've got an application questions on the back, number four. You don't have to look at it now, but I just encourage you to consider doing that. Start keeping a journal. Just do it for a week. Some of you men are like, I am never keeping a journal ever, 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 ever. That's okay. Do it mentally. Start becoming aware. I want you to start recording after the fact. Why did I do what I just did? Even the good things. Begin to consider. Stop a moment and go, now why did I really do that? I wanted to yell at my child because, well, he was being a knucklehead, and I caught myself. In that moment, or after that, ask yourself, why did I do that? Was my motive to glorify God and to love my child? Or if you do something else, even the bad stuff, why did I do that? Every motive of every word, every deed will be evaluated before the bema seat of Christ. Christ will judge our entire life, our deeds, our motives. Did we live God's way with God's heart for God's glory or not? 
After all, church, what does 1 Corinthians 10.31 say? Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That includes your attitude and your motives. Well, let's look at the final, the final element, the result, the result of the examination at the judgment seat of Christ. Again, in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, Paul says that Christ's judgment will result in one of two outcomes, either reward for works approved by Christ or loss for works not approved by Christ. And in verses 12 to 13, each Christian will stand alone. You recognize this is not going to be a croup judgment where we're all standing, all however many millions of us there are, and we're all in a group, and Jesus judges us all, and you're like, just don't make eye contact. We'll get through this. It'll be okay. Don't, don't. Oh, I look too high. Don't, no. Below the horizon. How do we know that? Each man's work, verse 13. Each of us is going to be judged on the work we did. It's not a group effort here. They're going to have their works, their deeds evaluated by the discerning fire of Christ's judgment. That's what this fire is. Christ is on the bema seat. He is the judge. He knows, he sees what you did in secret, what you did in private. He knows why you did what you did, and he will judge you. That's what this discerning fire is. The reaction, every word, every motive. It's judged. And if it remains, if it passes through this fire of discernment, then what happens? Well, the Christian will receive a reward. That's what it says at the end of verse 14. He will receive a reward. Now, what is this reward? You're like, now we're getting to the good stuff. Will I finally get my Corvette in heaven? Please say yes. Please, 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 please. In heaven for all of eternity, will I have the body of my 18-year-old self or my 55-year-old self? Please say 18. What is this reward? Well, in summary, there's a number of parallel passages that point to what this future reward may involve. Why do I say may? We can't be dogmatic. And I'm going to overview this. Otherwise, we will not eat lunch until 1. So I'm going to encourage you to study this more on your own. But both Benware and Pentecost least at least five. First, opportunities to serve Christ in greater ways in his future kingdom. Again, if you look at the parable of the talents, parable of the mina in Matthew 25 and Luke 19, faithfulness here equates more opportunity there. If you're faithful here, you get more opportunity there. Did you get that? And what might that be? It might mean more status. It might mean authority. When we get to the millennial kingdom, you're going to see that there's certain people who are elevated and ruling on thrones and it's because of their being rewarded. Two, it could be an experience of special joy and fellowship. Again, what does Matthew 25, 21 say? The master says, enter into the joy of your master. What does he mean by that? Enter into the joy of your master. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13 says something similarly. So this could be, this reward could be an, an experience of special joy and fellowship with Christ. Third, it could be a divine commendation. What is he, like a little ribbon or a pin or a, I don't know. Matthew 25, 21 says, well done, what? Good and faithful servant. Well done. What is that? It's commendation. We already read 1 Corinthians 4, 5, where it says his praise will come from God. What is that praise? It's con- 
It's a, I almost said condemnation. That would not have been the right word. It's a commendation. So it could be a divine commendation of some sort. Number four, it could be a variety of crowns. Now here is where you are desperately wanting me to go down that rabbit trail, and I will not. Talking about crowns is incredible, and the more I studied it, I had to come out of that hole. Otherwise, I would have stopped the message right here, and we would just end it on crowns. It is a fascinating subject. Study it. All five of those verses I listed list a distinct different type of crown. Go study that. So it could be a variety of crowns. And then fifth, and I think this is really the most important one, since believers were redeemed to glorify God, that's what 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, and we will have the capacity to shine forth as the sun, bringing glory to God. Just do a study on that idea of Christians shining forth. It's all peppered throughout the Old and the New Testament. So we have this capacity to shine forth as the sun, bringing glory to God in heaven for all of eternity. That's what Matthew 13, 41 says. It may be that this reward is tied to our capacity to reflect the glory of God for all of eternity, to shine those redeemed, those glorified. The greater the reward, the more capacity to bring glory to God. And that doesn't sound very exciting to you right now, does it? I think that's partly because we can't fully comprehend this. And I'd encourage you to read Grudem's little quote there on the back. It's a long one. Read it later. But he just talks a little bit about this idea. Because we long for more reward so that we might bring God even more glory. And this is part of what helps prevent this selfish motivation from creeping in. And let us never, ever, 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 ever forget the greatest reward that we will be in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for ours to behold his face forever, as the song said. We will experience his love, his peace, his joy, his healing, his happiness for all of eternity, and it will never grow old. Well, what about loss of reward? The text says something about a loss. So let me just tell you, loss does not mean not loss. Did you get that? It says there will be some kind of loss. We can't interpret loss to mean not loss, which I found there was a lot of Christian pastors and theologians trying to make this say something than it does. It says loss for a reason. So what is that loss? Well, it's interesting to note 2 Corinthians 5.10, the, the passage where Paul says whether good or bad, that word bad, there's two specific Greek words that are used throughout the New Testament that speak of moral or ethical evil. Some kind of, I mean, this is outright sin. It's interesting to note, Paul does not use either of those two Greek words. In fact, the word that, that Paul uses when he says bad is the word that actually is translated, probably betterly translated, as worthless or, or useless. Whether it's good, pleasing to God, or whether it's worthless in God's eyes. That's probably a better way to understand that. So this judgment is not to determine what is morally good or evil. Did you hear that? It's not to determine whether it was sin or not sin, but rather that which is acceptable, pleasing to God, and that which is worthless to God. So think of this judgment as more of an evaluation, this testing. You're being evaluated. 
And the question you have to ask, does it have eternal value in God's economy? Those who live and serve Christ motivated by some type of self-promotion or financial gain or some other improper goal will not receive rewards because their deeds were worthless. Who did they do it for? Themselves, even if it looked good on the outside. They did it for themselves. They received their reward on earth. That's why sometimes my parents and even my kids do this. Sometimes I will toot my own horn. You know what that means? I did something good. I'm like, hey, did you see what I did? Did you, did you see it? Did you want, want me to walk you through what I just did? They're like, great, Dad. Now you just lost your crown in heaven. I am going to stop teaching you stuff. <laughs> what do they mean? They mean like you just took all the credit. Let me give you some examples. You can watch TV. You can sleep in late. You can play video games for six hours. You can get on your phone and play your app games. All for six hours. Or in those same six hours, you can serve. You can pray. You can study scripture. You can share the gospel. You can send someone an encouraging email. You can do this. Or you can do this. You can spend money on golf. Did you hear that, guys? Woohoo! Or you can spend money on missions. You can buy yourself that new car with that new car smell. Or you can buy a used car and use the extra that you save to support an orphanage. You can. You can spend your vacation time and money on yourself at a lavish beach resort. Or you can use that same time and money to go to Honduras ministering to the physical and spiritual needs of the people you encounter there. You can. And in all of these examples, please hear me, church. Some of you are already offended. You're already thinking of the nasty letter you're going to write me. Dear Kyle, I was deeply offended by what you said on Sunday. Please hear me. In all of these examples, neither option is sinful. I'm not saying that those things are sinful in and of themselves. But do you really expect that God views both the same way and that both choices are equal in his sight? You think so? Eh. Because if our work burns up, and that's what 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, if it, it doesn't pass the test we will suffer loss. Now the question is, what does he mean when he says loss? What is this loss? Let me tell you two things that clearly cannot be. First, it cannot be a loss of salvation. How do we know that? Because in the same verse, Paul says, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. No matter how much is worthless in the life of a Christian, that Christian will not lose his salvation. Did you hear that? So this is not talking about a loss of salvation. In fact, I think what that means, he will be saved, yet through the fire, I think it means he's going to be saved with little to no reward in heaven. And is the American evangelical church filled of those kind of Christians? Yes. In fact, you or I might be one of them. Secondly, what it cannot be, it cannot be a punitive loss. Think of punishment. 
coming from judgment for sin. Why do we know that? Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation. Church, did you hear that? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation? Because who took the condemnation in your place? Christ did. He suffered for you. He atoned in your place. And the wrath and punishment of God was satisfied when it was spent on Him. So this judgment is not about Christ punishing you. He already took that on your behalf. Now let me tell you what it possibly is, this loss. It's possible that this loss could be shame. In fact, turn with me to 1 John 2, 28. Now I know Ken taught on this back in January. He was wrestling through the same topic, just like I was the last couple of days. 1 John 2, 28 says something pretty clearly. It says, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, what in the world does that verse mean? Clearly, it's talking about Christ's coming, and it's talking about the desire to want to, to, when he comes and when I see him coming in the clouds, I am with confidence. Yes, it's my Savior. I don't want to be the Christian that shrinks away in shame at his coming. This is the Christian that is standing before the Savior and saying, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. You, you don't understand. I, I had to, to spend that money this way. Well, Lord, if only I had more time, I would have I turned my life around. I would have done more for you. No, no, Jesus, you don't understand. It was hard. I'm so sorry. That's what this verse seems to be saying that we would not shrink away in shame because I know that Christ shed His blood to redeem me and I did not use my life well. And the things that I did, even good things, were worthless because I did them for me, not for Him. I think that's what this verse means. Now some of you are like, wait a minute. If you're in heaven, how can you be shamed? How can you be afraid? That's why I think if that's in fact, and I think that's what this verse means. If that's what this means, I think this shame is going to be for a moment. In fact, I think that's what Paul is referring to in Philippians 2.16 when he, when he said, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, again, what's the day of Christ he's referring to? The rapture and the bema seat. In the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul has this confidence. And that's why he, he worked so hard to live his life according to Scripture. He knew that when Christ come back, and he was going to come back, Paul knew that. He said, I don't want to have run in vain. That what, everything I did in life and ministry was empty and worthless. In fact, even in Job 23.10, talks about this. Job says, because when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's confidence. Job expresses confidence that when I am tested, I know what's going to happen because I know my heart and I know what I did. John MacArthur summarizes this idea in this way. He says, the loss could be, even John MacArthur says could be, that's important. John doesn't often say could be, says this loss could be the realization and awareness of lost opportunities for Christ and a deep remorse for wasting valuable opportunities to bring God glory and to gain greater eternal reward. 
that's even possible? Do you want to run that risk? The shout of Christ, the trumpet sound, the angel's voice, and in a moment, in a twinkle of an eye, you are standing before the Savior, and in that moment, at your first sight of the face of Christ, shame. Is there a do-over? Can you go back? If only... No. I think that's what this verse is talking about. So in summary, this loss is not salvific. Did you hear that? It's not salvific. It's not that you're going to lose your salvation. It's not punitive. It's not a a place for, for Christ to punish us as if he has the same whip that he got the people out of the temple. He's going to whip us with that. No, that's not what this means. Rather, it's referring to loss of reward and possibly a moment a moment of shame and wasted opportunity. However, please hear this. It should be noted that when a Christian appears before Jesus, this is still going to be an overwhelmingly joyous event. And so that's why I clarify that if there is shame, and I can't be dogmatic, I could be wrong here, but I think that's what this verse means, literally, literal interpretation possible that there would be a moment of shame because we didn't live life the way Christ wanted us to. So why is this concept of degrees of heavenly reward so important for us to understand now? Why did I spend so much time focusing on this? Because the fact that there will be degrees of reward in heaven based on the quality of our work on earth is ultimately what makes the difference between generous giving and measly giving between sacrificial evangelistic work and those who do the bare minimum their conscience allows. Church, do we have the gospel? Do we understand that you and I, not just pastors, not just evangelists, not just Randy Swearens and his team, you as a Christian are called to go and share the good news to your neighbors and your family. You get that? You know that. So why are we not doing it? Maybe if we fully understood this concept of reward that we're storing up treasure in heaven that would motivate us to get out and just try. It's positive. This truth is ultimately what makes the difference between untiring sacrificial service even when you keep getting those emails from Ken Parkin. And I confess, when I got a call from Randy, I was going to go pray with the team. I didn't want to drive them to the airport. Randy has no idea. I was struggling when he asked me. I was like, well, I know what the pastor should say. And I said yes. And the whole time, my heart is struggling because I had other things that were more important. Like prepare a message on rapture. You're not the only one who struggles with this. We all struggle with it. But if you understand this concept of of heavenly reward, it should motivate you. The sacrifices, are they really sacrifices? Is anything you and I might do and sacrifice truly in the sense of the word? Who did the sacrifice? Christ did. The privileges that you and I have to give up things for the sake of the gospel and the sake to build up the church and to reach the lost, that is a joy. And when we do it, we have the confidence that when we stand before the Savior, we will receive reward. And if that doesn't do something in your heart, 
It's coming. Because the more that you and I believe and embrace this doctrine, the more it should affect the way we make decisions in this life, which will have eternal consequences in the next. Jesus said, don't store up your treasure on earth. Moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, but store up your treasure where? In heaven. Why? Because those things won't happen. They're eternal. But then he says something that's a little bit uh, convicting and sometimes darn right offensive. In verse 24, he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you are treasuring and savoring Christ, the one who died for you, when you live your life in a way that pleases him, according to the word of God, as a steward of all that God's entrusted you with a motive that longs to please him, he is going to reward you, and you can have confidence that that will happen someday soon. Well, this morning we have examined seven elements of the judgment seat of Christ so that we might live in anticipation of this heavenly reward. The reality is we are all just one heartbeat away from a fixed state of reward. And someday soon, maybe even today, wouldn't that be cool? Maybe even today, we will stand before our Savior to give an account for the way we lived our life. And I would hate for any of us as Christians to respond to that experience with anything but joyful, expectant confidence at the coming of Christ. To experience the indescribable joy of seeing Christ face to face. What is that going to be? Look, I don't know what that's going to be like. I get to see and touch and talk to Jesus. To experience His peace and love and rest. Don't waste any opportunity to please God. Do the work. Be a faithful steward. And don't get so caught up in the temporary pleasures of this world that you lose sight of the next. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that your word is clear, that as Christians we don't have to fear the Bema Seat. Because we know even if we have not done everything that we could, everything in a way that was most pleasing to you, and every Christian in this room probably will have that to some extent, that we know the surpassing joy of being in heaven with you for all of eternity far outshines any shame or fear at your coming. But at the same time, we don't want to lose sight that your word seems to speak of this. And so, Lord, if there is anything in my heart, in my life, Lord God, would you break me? If there's anything that is preventing me from using what you've given me for your glory, Lord, would you show me? Show us, Lord, so that we might be faithful stewards because we long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful one. Enter into the joy of your master. We ask these things because we trust in you and we believe that they will happen and we know that you can help us. It's in Christ we pray, amen.